Okay, this is episode number three on Outline of a Murder. Season two. two. Yes, not season one, like we had to erase, right? Right. This is season two. Season two. And we are the Smart True Crime Podcast. It goes into the why. I am Sherry Wilson, your host. And with me is a woman who drives so much for her job. Ted Bundy would be jealous. The one, the only, mom. (laughs) Thank you, and he would be very jealous. About 5,000 miles a month. Yes, he would. Any any killer would. You know, I... As Keys would. uh, For some light reading in between our podcast seasons, I've been reading about sexual sadists. Right. Okay. (laughs) Called Dark Dreams. You know, just a little bit of reading before bed. A little light reading before bed. I found out that there are some serial killers that are actually typed... Uh, by how much they drive. Like how? They love to drive. They will drive way out to dispose of victims. They will drive a lot to troll. They can put thousands, if not at least hundreds of miles on a vehicle in one month. It's amazing. Well, to them, it's like getting a victim. To them, is like us driving far to get jewelry, food, relatives. Yes. I see that. Yes. Yes. So, But again, I think you would make Ted Bundy jealous with all the driving you get to do. Definitely. Okay. Today we are drinking Stella Rosa, which mm-hmm. is Stella Rosso, their semi-sweet. Now, just so the listeners know, I am a little upset with my mother because she suggested that I throw out or down the drain the Stella Rosa white sour apple, because which I rated at a five. I rate it at a 3.5. Right. So why? I mean, if you want to throw it out, then it would need to be a negative 3.5. Well, I didn't want your reaction had I done a minus. Anyway, it's a very delicious wine with a hint of apple on the end. So, all right. I want you to taste this one. The semi-sweet red. She's very nervous, by the way, because she doesn't like dry wines. Oh, that's not bad. I told you. See, I promised when you would like it. Semi-sweet. I'm like, oh, I don't like dry wines. Yeah, this is really good. It's one of my favorites because, I mean, I can drink dry, but just for every night when me and Mike have a glass of wine, I do like Stella Rosa a lot. I do. I had just recently tried it. It was recommended by a lady at work. Now I do it's need good. to try the cabs you got though. Oh yeah, yeah, for the podcast, but and that I will not be trying. Oh, because those I, are really dry. I right, don't know about that. Uh, I don't I, know. I, we do like our wine during each podcast, so I, I'll try it you, for you. You could have a sip at least. I will. I will. Mm-hmm. And this isn't bad. Probably like it too. This is better than the apple. Whatever. You I know think. what? We're gonna have to get Mike's take on the whole. If this is better than the apple. It's better than the apple. Which, if you just heard the door squeaking, that was Mike coming into the kitchen. you have to try the apple and then this one when you're done with what you're drinking. Yes. <laughs> He'll probably be bouncing off the walls, some nitro in a can there. <laughs> okay. So, if you guys have any wines that you like, again, I like Malbec. I like Cabernet. I like the sweet wines. Um, I'm not big on, like, the... Um, uh, Blanc, let's see, Sauvignon Blanc, I think, or something like that. But I'm a newbie. I'm right, a newbie. I am too. But there are certain ones I've had where they taste like medicine. I like low tannins. Low tannins, low alcohol. So if anybody has any too. recommendations. Or, yeah, recommendations mm-hmm. or a wine they like. If you can contact Sherry on outline of a murdered podcast.com podcast.com but I do like um for those of you that like an inexpensive wine I do aerate it so it doesn't have um the headache effect but the collection at Target is absolutely delicious their Cabernet what is it what's the name of it it's called the collection oh mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and people can donate to our wine fund as well if they want to do that and please share and leave a review um, of this podcast we've worked on our sound for this season that was my dream season one but i just didn't you know know what to purchase what to get now we're hooked up hopefully the sound quality is fabulous but without further ado i think newbies it's time at wine and newbies at podcasts yeah, true crime podcasts yeah 
We are learning new details about the murder, very different kind of story. Murder of a Pennsylvania man who predicted his own death. How did he do that? In 2012, Frank Spencer was shot and killed in his home just weeks after signing divorce papers. Now, before his murder, he received numerous threats from his ex-wife, Maria Spencer. He told friends he thought that she would be behind his murder at home. Frank Spencer's body was right here on these tiles. Uh, Frank's head was uh, behind this doorway and his arms were outreached above his head. He was laying on his back. Frank's friend, Joe Yodok, had found his body. This loss, somebody you knew from the time you were in kindergarten. Can you put that in words? Oh. Nope. Most of Frank's friends, including Dina Reed, immediately suspected Frank's ex-wife, Maria Spencer. We knew it was Maria. We didn't know who else might have been involved, but we knew it was her. Okay, so we're going to dive into um, a case that's actually a male victim. And I wanted to do that because, you know, all of our cases have been where um, males are killing intimate partners. Right. Now, of course, we did Ted Bundy season one from the perspective of his long-term girlfriend, Elizabeth Kendall, and the the red flags, you know, Mm -hmm. the different things she saw. I felt it was important to highlight that men are often victims as well. And I do have some resources because we have resources on our uh, website that you can um, get help. Like if you're in the military and you're trying to escape an abusive spouse, um, like several, um, uh, you know, government resources where you can you know, have numbers and people to call. I mean, we want to make sure that if anybody find, find themselves in a bad situation, that they have resources and this one, me and you actually watched the show about. It's uh, Frank Spencer is the name of the victim. And we watched, I think it was on Dateline or 2020, when we first got the idea of the podcast about two years ago. And I thought, man, this will be a good one to do because it's a male victim. And I think sometimes they don't get any attention. I think I know which one this is. Yeah. I don't really know until we do them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so our reactions are real. Mm-hmm. We we do this for fun. It's mm-hmm. not for anything else but fun and just make people aware. Mm-hmm. And by fun, obviously not taking the no, victims or their families lightly. But it to me, what's fascinating about true crime is the psychology. You know how someone can be born an innocent, sweet baby and end up killing right. people. It's very fascinating. But for us, and our purpose of this podcast is to provide people with clues, red flags, and some resources, uh, and just ways to determine. Okay, is this person lying? You know, like what's going on here? And just given hopefully some helpful information that can help some people. Like you said, you've already talked to people that have listened to it, and they're and like, said, yeah. And, yeah. and for me, fun wasn't the right word, but, you know, it's for my daughters and I mm-hmm. and me do it. Is, is so that, that you and I? You and I. Yeah, you said I and me. I know it. That's why I tried to change it. Then. Right. Yeah, these are how your kids act. And I'm sure a lot of people know you sort of glide through a mistake. But um, Sherry's sister isn't doing it this season with us. But um, And that would be your daughter as well? Yes. Here we, <clears throat> Not again. just my sister. Oh. Is it, some, is it? Every mother out there is thinking, Mom, I know what you're going through right now. I'm sure it's past your bedtime, so whatever. we probably need to whatever. <laughs> get to the, the oh. case. Okay, this one, I, you know, again, I've been wanting to do ever since we saw it on the show. And this case, every one of them made me mad because of just certain things. Like episode two, I was mad that the poop bird dad was willing to have his wife killed with the kids there and actually killed the wives. The first one was frustrating because, you know, the man kills his wife in front of the three-year-old son. Well, what made me mad about that one, Bonnie, mm-hmm. is that her own father yes. took the side of the, the killer, yeah. of the killer yeah. and knowing how many flags there were, there's a lot of reason to be angry. 
This one makes me angry, and I just want to you know say right off the bat, I love uh, law enforcement, but they failed in this case. And if they would have done a better job, I firmly believe that Frank would be alive. And he was stalked, he was threatened, and he was finally killed by his ex-wife. So we're just going to say right off the bat who did it. But I feel it's important in our breakdown of cases and how they happen and what might help spot predators to include the men. Now, he was, uh, Frank Spencer was a beloved friend. He was a son. Uh, He had a a fiancé, almost fiancé. They were pretty serious at the time of his death. But he's from Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. So this is a picture of Bloomsburg. I wanted to kind of see the town. Because you know what's funny is a lot of these communities where this happens... Um, like people think, well, you know, as a, a bedroom community, which I don't even know what the heck that means. It's like, what do you mean bedroom? But they're like small communities, I think they're small tight communities, and everyone knows yeah. everybody. I yeah. think that's what that is. And the thing is, is that people don't ever think things like this can happen there. I remember when the kid went into our library where I live and shot it up. We're a small community of about forty nine thousand, and people are like, I just never thought this would happen here. I'm like, it can happen anywhere. Oh, it can happen anywhere. That's the purpose of this. Yes. It's like Mm -hmm. you have to be aware of your surroundings. And that's why we always finish our season off with a killer that no matter what you did, you know, you were not going to be out of his sights. And um, but this is another one. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. I mean, it's just so that's a pretty little town. Yeah. Yeah. It's really pretty. Those old buildings sort of back in time kind of. It does. Yeah, so it's a gorgeous, gorgeous town, lots of trees, and it has a population of about 14,000. Oh, small. Small again, yeah. And, I mean, I've been all over Pennsylvania, actually, you know, because Dad was a truck driver, and so we went to Pennsylvania a lot, and it was always amazing how green it was. Mm -hmm. But I do have to say, at night in the summer, it was really creepy, because we would be driving mostly at night, because Dad like to bypass the way stations <laughs> right and like rolling fog would come in oh it's scary oh. you know you're like out in the middle of nowhere driving at night with all these trees on each side of you and all this fog and it's just like to me it's like scary movie and then material. the day it's so pretty it is green. it's very pretty Bloomsburg was described as an easygoing town. It's a home to the Bloomsburg Theater Ensemble, which is founded in 1978 to establish a resident professional ensemble for the production of quality entertainment and educational programs, and then also to promote the arts. Like their library was founded in 1899. It's also the home uh, to the Bloomsburg Fair, which is the largest fair in the state of Pennsylvania, which I thought was funny because they're such a small town. And that was founded, get this, 1855. Wow. So it's been around for a long time. It seems like a really neat place. But yet it's still small. The That's reason nice. I wanted to go into detail about this town is it'll become clear as we go. Okay. Okay, because there's a pattern, it seems, in some of these small towns when it comes to law enforcement. On Tuesday, July 3rd, 2012, Frank's <laughs> lifelong friend, since they were age five, uh, Joe Yadik, I think is how you say his name. I hope I don't butcher it. He hadn't heard from his friend Frank since Saturday. Okay, so this is Tuesday. Right. It appears that he and Frank had been working on go-karts, and they were right in the middle of a big series trying to win it. He had been texting Frank because there were issues they had to fix on the go-karts, but there was no response, and that was very, very unusual because Frank always replied to his friends. Um, everybody loved him, you know, so he had really good relationships. And uh, he couldn't get a response, so uh, um, finally Joe went to his house. Now, these are his own words on what he found. He said, I'll never forget it. I was pulling down the driveway, and I thought, I hope I don't find him dead. He went up to his door. He saw him lying on the floor right inside. I'm pretty sure the door was closed, and he had to, like, open it. You know, he had to push because I think his body was kind of blocking the doorway. his body was blocking. He said he had this look of peace, calmness that he hadn't had in a long time. 
I stepped over his legs, and I noticed what looked like dried blood in his ear. Now I realized what happened and that he wasn't alive. So why exactly did he make that statement that he had a look of peace and calmness that he had not had in a long time? Yeah, because I was just thinking, well, he's engaged. Right. Well, that would be because of a lady named Maria Spencer. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down the cast of characters for you. Okay. Okay? So Frank Spencer, like I said, well-liked in his community. Every picture I found of him, like he's, you know, practic- I mean, just pretty much smiling on every one of them. Let me get to. You know, the thing, too, even if you know someone that's pretty normal and that has a routine you talk to daily, when they don't stop talking, typically something's up. Yeah. You know, yeah. Don't wait. Just go check on yeah, them. Yeah, or have a, a police, an officer, somebody. And go you do may welfare. feel silly, but I think that's better. I think people just don't want to be rude and intrude on people in case you know they're going through something. But no, if there's any deviation mm-hmm. from the behavior, I do that all the time. Um, when I was taking care of my grandpa. Uh, even before he needed extra help, if I didn't hear from him, I was making a beeline over there. And same thing with my dad. I mean, he's capable, he's active, but I still, if he doesn't respond within a few hours, I know something's going on and I will go over there. And uh, you're right. It's if there's anything that's weird out of character, go check. But again, you know, we've talked about this before. You don't think the worst. That's not your first thing usually. Right. See, I do. I do, too. But most people don't. They think, oh, they need time. I'll hear from them tomorrow. You know. I, I usually will not wait till tomorrow. If it's, yeah. If mm-hmm. it's something, a routine, and it's out, yeah, follow yeah. your instinct. So, like I said, every picture I saw of him, he was usually smiling. He seemed like a hard-working, hard-playing, average guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's an excerpt from his obituary. It says, Frank T. Spencer, age 46, of Fairview Road, Bloomsburg, died Tuesday, July 3rd, 2012, at his Hemlock Township home. He was born on Wednesday, November 10th, 1965, the son of late Cyrus E. Spencer and Madeline Benza, it looks like, was a nickname, Spencer of Bloomsburg. Oh, that was her last name or maiden. Frank was a 1984 graduate of the Bloomsburg High School where he was a well-known member of the wrestling team and a 1988 graduate of the Bloomsburg University. He was owner and operator of Spencer Auto Parts and used cars, a family business which he continued after the death of his father. So just from that, you could tell he's just an average guy. Mm, average, yeah. Hard work, average, yeah. yeah. Um, Was, you know, fixing up go-karts for his kids with his friend. You know, just a a normal type person. Now, Maria Spencer, on the other hand, was the polar opposite of Frank. She was fiery, passionate, and quite frankly, she was just crazy. Um, And that's the... That's the ex-wife. Okay. And, and like, literally, she's insane. So that's her. And, uh, and you can tell, I don't know like what her ethnicity is, but I know they have like a lot of different ethnicities from, um, over in Europe, like uh, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, all those. I'm not sure. Um, maybe she was a little Italian with her dad's name, which is, uh, I think Rosso or something like that. I'll, we'll figure, or Rizzo. It might be Rizzo. So maybe she's got some Italian in her. Maybe. The only reason I say that is some ethnicities do tend to have more passion, more fire in oh, them, yeah. where others might be a little more, you know, um, uh-huh. stoic, like the German people often are more stoic. Mm-hmm. But um, that's what interested Frank. You know, like, even though he was an average guy, he also seemed to like a little bit of excitement, a little bit of challenge. And he was attracted to her, and they eloped in 1997. Not long after that, they had a son named Cyrus. Maybe she was Greek. How long did they date? And a daughter, Frankie. I'm not sure. I couldn't find. I tried. I tried to find how long. I bet it wasn't long. And then in the beginning, Maria was a lot of fun for him because he had a bit of a wild side to him as well. She was a lawyer, a soccer coach, and a volunteer. Oh, she was a lawyer? Yes. I thought that was very interesting. That's interesting. But things started to uh, sour for Frank after the kids because she, quote, didn't warm to family life. 
Like Frank was a family man and he loved his family and being with them. And it bothered Frank that she didn't really have much interest in the kids. Plus, she was a very angry and vengeful person. The marriage soon started to fail and Frank filed for divorce in 2006. So they eloped in 97, so almost 10 years later, he filed for divorce. Put up with that. Which I think a lot of people do that. They do. They try to make it work the best they can, and then finally it's just done. Police were called out several times for domestic disputes. And what's crazy is that Frank was killed three weeks before the divorce, meaning that the divorce was taking almost six years. Oh, wow. She also loved to leave voicemails. So I'm going to play those for you. Some of the ones she left. So the first one is February 6, 2010. So that's the first one. And then she leaves another one. Wow, what a big change in a short time. Nice, friendly, Mm -hmm. and then vicious. And you know what I thought was interesting about that is she said, you think I'm going to let you win, Frank? You don't win, you know, or something to that. Well, it's just like the Kelly Clayton case where her husband on the hockey game, you know, Phil. Oh, yeah, yeah. He uh, was like anything to win. wanted to win. yeah. I so wonder what, it's a winning situation for these people. I wonder what set her off. She, he wouldn't apologize to her dad. Well, yeah, but it started out nice. I don't care if you apologize. That's on you. Right. And then vicious. This was for six years she did this to this man. She would leave these voicemails. Did he file charges? He went order, to the police. Anything? Yeah. It's it's unbelievable, actually. The more we get into it, the more frustrated you're going to be with the police. I can mm. guarantee it. So that's just an example of a very small, like two out of the hundreds oh that my. she left. She became even more unstable, and she was arrested in 2008 after a scuffle with Frank's mother at oh her daughter's gosh. school. Yeah. She pled guilty to the charges, and she paid a $600 fine. She repeatedly threatened to kill Frank, which we'll get into more of that later, and she fought the divorce all the way. It was very contentious. I think control, I think revenge, I I think that she didn't want him happy. She wanted to win. And if she could prolong the divorce, you know, he'd give up. That was revenge. Or maybe she did want him back. I don't know. But she's a very hateful, spiteful yeah, person. Yeah, that's a crazy way to want someone back. Yeah, I think oh. it was more just to maintain control and torment Was him. he fighting for custody? Well, so in spite of how crazy he was, okay, Frank didn't want to disrupt the kid's home life. Oh. So he made arrangements that bat poop, bat poop crazy Maria um, would <laughs> alternate weeks with him at the house. So they, they lived in the original home. Together? And then he would move out uh, her visitation time, and then she would move out his visitation time. That's sort of crazy. It is. Because after the divorce, 
I mean, you're not going to be doing that. Well, he just didn't want the kids. He loved his kids, and he wanted he didn't want them being shuffled back and forth between the houses. I personally think it was a bad idea. Yeah, because when you get a divorce, it goes back and forth. Yeah, not but to he mention didn't the fiance. He didn't want to do that. Mm. And his friend Joe, the one that discovered him, said you could tell there was just venom. It was very, I mean, it didn't matter who was there. She'd fly in screaming and slamming car doors. Wow. Pennsylvania Senior Deputy uh, Attorney General Tony Foray said that she was a classic femme fatale, an attractive woman, a seductress. When a man becomes involved with her, she is going to, uh, that this is going to end poorly. Okay. So that's Frank and Maria. Now. I want to introduce you to uh, Sergeant Scott Trow. This guy really irritates me. And quite frankly, didn't help Frank, it seems, at all. He um, reminds me of those small towns, my own included, where either the police just don't care, they don't want to do anything, or their hands are tied. You know, sometimes you just get that type of vibe from some of the police officers, not all of them. Or maybe, like I listened to a podcast last week, they weren't equipped, never had a murder, it was a small town, but they didn't want to ask for help. Yes. Because they were prideful and said, no, we can handle it. And in the end, later when all of them were um, lost their jobs, the new um, oh, district attorney, mm-hmm. um, they did ask for help from the mm-hmm. FBI. Yep. Well, and I wonder, too, if it was because the victim was a man. Oh, that could be, too. Because he's a big guy. Because he's a big guy, yeah. And they're probably like, you know what, this is this little, you know, but she was insane. And I think they underestimated how evil she was. Or it could have been both. It could have been. He's a man, and they were incompetent. But what makes me even more frustrated is they never took responsibility. So, uh, Sergeant Scott said that Frank and Maria's relationship was volatile, and he personally wrote up some of Maria's death threats that Frank reported to him. He said that Frank didn't want to be, you know, have them pursued, and they would often reconcile, he said. I think the first part is probably a cop-out, pun right. intended, but the other, it did actually seem to be the case, because what would happen is she'd be like all insane and crazy, and then she would seduce him to sleep with her, well, yeah, and then and they're she'd be crazy the again. Yeah. Well, no, they weren't, because remember, when she was there, he would move out. Yeah, they didn't live in the same house. He lived there with the kids when it was his visiting time, and then he moved out, and she lived with the kids when it was her visiting time. Hmm. Yeah, so they didn't live together, but she definitely was like playing him, and he was like on a, a string. So they'd end up sleeping several times during the divorce. Next was a girlfriend, and that was a picture I showed you. He's um, sitting with his new uh, girlfriend. Let's see if I can find it. Oh, here it is. Which looks normal. Yeah, so three years into the divorce battle, Frank met a woman named Julie Dent, uh, pretty blonde. Uh, that seems the polar opposite of Maria, where Maria was crazy and, you know, and even in looks. This one, she's uh, got a great personality. She's, a you know, pretty blonde. And she had been dating him at the time of his death, and they were both smitten with each other from the time they met through mutual friends. Things did turn serious in the relationship and very serious with Maria, who did not take the news well at all. Of course not. When she found out that Julie was spending time with her kids, because people like this, it's about control and being the most important person. It is, yep. Anybody that's a threat, right? So she found out that she was spending time with the children, and she left this voicemail in February. She said, hey, Julie, it's Maria Spencer. You can go out with Frank, but do not, make no mistake about it, watch my children. So... With that, it makes her sound like a bee, you know, which isn't that bad. But this has been three years since Frank filed for divorce, and she didn't have much interest in the kids anyway. So, again, we can take this as a controlling gesture. She just wanted to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But on the other side, I would say I wouldn't want an ex-husband's girlfriend watching my kid either. You know, like that would be really weird, and I think that would be hard to deal with. Well, it's weirder that they moved in the house that a, that a fiancé 
would like the fact that her her man is moving out, so the ex-wife, not even ex-wife, moves in your house. That Whether is Whether you want to disrupt it or not, especially that she's crazy. Mm-hmm. I yeah. don't know. That's weird to me. Well, he was a family guy, and probably his love for his children, maybe, you know, well, that's true. it wasn't the best plan. Uh, I want to now introduce you to another character, and then we'll get into um, all that happened. So Maria's father, Rocco Franklin, was released from prison after serving five years on fraud charges. And let me bring him up. He, uh, he's a character. He tried to say that he had some uh, mafia ties. And, and he these might pictures have. are on the website also, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Right. yeah. He might have had some mafia ties. I don't know. But uh, he was a career a criminal. He was just as crazy as his daughter, and Frank knew it. He began to change uh, his habits. That's how concerned Frank was. Oh, really? Yep. He became very concerned that something was going to happen to him, especially when her dad got out. It was, Did he tell anyone, restraining order, the police? We'll get into that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was bad enough that Maria's making death threats. Now Rocco's out and they might be carried out. And he knew it. His friend Joe said that he felt like he was being hunted and weird things were starting to happen. You know, back to the apology. Do you know why he, they felt he needed to apologize? No. Mm -mm. Hmm. There's no telling. I mean, maybe they got in an altercation or maybe, uh, he wanted Frank to apologize for how the marriage turned out. I mean, there's so many things. I didn't find that out. The first incident was a few months after Rocco was released from prison. There was a break-in at Frank's junkyard. Nothing valuable was taken, but some business records were stolen. And coincidentally, only records that could help Maria prove Frank's income in the divorce. Those were the only ones. did that? I don't know. Oh, brother. Now, Maria and Rocco were dumb and dumber, seriously, and how they covered their tracks. But even how stupid they were, the cops didn't do anything. So the break-in, no one was arrested? No. The day after, Tom Leopold, the prosecutor who once prosecuted Maria and was now her divorce lawyer. Oh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Received a call from Maria telling him that she found a trash bag full of the stolen records on the porch of her mother's house. I wonder how those got there. Hmm. Good old dad. Many suspected who did it, obviously. Sergeant Trowell interviewed Maria and gathered evidence that he then took to the DA, Tom's boss. Both he and the DA reviewed the entire case, and the DA decided there wasn't enough to pursue criminal charges against Maria. The documents were returned to Frank, and the burglary left unsolved. Well, she's a lawyer. She knows them all. Mm -hmm. I mean, her lawyer is the one that prosecuted her. Mm -hmm. So she'd been threatening to kill Frank this whole time, and then Frank had told Derek, uh, no, Dirk Reed, another good friend, where he was going to be killed. He told him it'd be at his house. And he even knew that he'd be killed because Maria said, or how he would be killed because Maria told him that he'd be shot in the head. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was like the best kept secret in the town. Everybody knew how it was going to end, and no one did anything and no one as did far as the thing. cops. Yeah. And Frank told them. Yeah. Told everybody. Yes. By the winter of 2010, Frank and Julie had been dating each other for months. Things were good. Uh, but not with the crazy, estranged wife. It started with a vo- another voicemail to Julie. This time, Maria said, Hey, Julie, it's Maria Spencer. Do me a favor. Don't watch my children. Do not get between me and Frank by doing my children. You understand me. Julie had never been threatened before in her life. 
Okay, like she's not that type of person. She dismissed it as Maria being a bully and running off at the mouth. She also left, you know, voicemails for Frank, of course. Hey, Frank, it's Maria. He's an old man. He's got funny ways. I thought I'd let you know because I care about you, not because I want to frighten you. So obviously talking about her brother or her her dad. dad. Frank and Julie, they tried to have as normal a life as possible. They even planned a trip to the Caribbean in January. And Maria knew about it, so she really amped up the attacks. Now she's starting to text Julie. She'd tell her things like, he loves me but doesn't want to disappoint you on your only vacation this year. And don't she, he doesn't want you to know that he uh, loves me more than you, stuff like that. And then sadly, the night before they were supposed to leave for their vacation, Maria asked Frank to meet him for dinner to discuss custody and seduced him at a hotel. So they have sex again. And then that night, Frank's mother's home went up in flames. With the mother in it? No. The house was empty except for the kid's dog who died. Oh, wow. So Dirk, Frank's friend, was standing there looking at all the still smoldering, uh, you know, ruins, wondering if Frank was in there when Frank drove up. And uh, this is a picture of the house. Oh, my gosh, a mother's house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not obvious who did that. Right. And who should be looked at. And I imagine when she seduced him, she let the fiancé know one oh, way yeah. or another. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it gets worse. <clears throat> so that happens. The fire marshal said that there was no way to find evidence of arson because the house was destroyed. And he designated it as undetermined. Frank told him he knew Maria and her father had planned it and carried it out, but they wouldn't do anything. Well, I've seen fires before where it's burnt to the ground, mm-hmm. and they can tell. Oh yeah, what who if someone did it or if it was natural? Yes, yes. Frank was livid, and he wanted an arrest. He and another friend, Joel Weist, talked to everyone they could think of in law enforcement. Sergeant Trowell started a case file and spoke to Maria, but said he couldn't do anything due to the fire marshal's determination. That's BS. I mean, it's so frustrating. They know she is doing all of this, but they didn't make any effort to do anything about it. And and again, it may be the small town policing. You know, that's why I gave the description like I did. I don't know, but I'm so irritated at the lackadaisical because when you've got someone starting a fire, it's only a matter of time. It'll escalate. Yes. Wow. The sergeant did feel it was arson, but he felt his hands were tied. Well, he could have told some... Well, tied how? I don't know. Well, the fire marshal, you know, said it was undetermined. After the fire, Maria sent Frank a text. Karma is a wonderful thing. You destroyed my life. I feel a lot better since your whole life went up in the fire. Makes it fair. Then she sent one to Julie saying, I will make her lose her job, her home, and you. Frank was very, very upset. Maria got bolder and bolder in her threats and more public. I mean, why not? Because nothing's going to happen. Nothing happens. At at the kid's soccer game, Maria got in Julie's face and screamed that her house was next. Oh. A few months later, Julie was sleeping, and she heard glass breaking. She came around to the top of the stairs and was about to round the corner when a fireball came at her up the stairs. She opened a window. She got out on the porch, um, onto the porch and jumped from the second-story roof uninjured. She lost everything in that fire, and that's a picture of her staircase oh, right there. Wow. Yeah, so it just literally came up the staircase. So all these threats, witnesses. Mm-hmm. They've been telling them, and they've done nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So are you ready to see what the police did this time? Yes. Okay. Nothing. Another fire fire marshal, since Julie lived in a different county, came and said he couldn't find any evidence of what started the fire, which I call BS again. And this time, Frank and Julie were fed up. Now, you know, his mom's house has been burned down. Now, Julie's house has been burned, and she lost everything. And Julie had nothing to do with this except she liked Frank, right? It's ridiculous. She sees a fireball, and he didn't see anything. I don't, that's just a bunch of crap. There was evidence at the scene, like a jack used to break the window, a path in the weeds by the house, 
a milk jug and unused road flare lying next to it. And there was no evidence that it right. was... And so it was obvious that it was an igniter for the firebomb. The marshal came back out. He checked for accelerants, found gasoline all over the steps, so they finally ruled it as arson. Frank and Julie told them they knew who did it. Everybody knew who did it, but once again, nothing was done. Frank and Julie separated briefly, probably to keep her safe, and went to the local paper and told their story, and I think that's a very good idea. A lot of cases that I've listened to, they that's what they do. Yeah. When the when the uh, authorities don't do their job or they feel they don't, they go to. And I think that's a good idea. I do too. I think it's if excellent. you can't get help, you know your life is in danger or someone you love, go to the newspaper. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good idea. They do. They told their story, and it seems that things settled down for a little bit. I'm not sure how long or how much they settled, but a year and a half later, the local paper announced the divorce of Frank and Maria on June 30th, 2010, and the day after the divorce notice, Frank Spencer was dead. Wow. After the divorce. Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania State Police Corporal Sean Williams was assigned to lead the murder investigation the day Frank's body was discovered by his friend. He's now with the DA's office in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, and he describes what he saw to Peter Van Saint or Sant of Dateline. So I think it's Saint. I'm going to show you these pictures. Uh, okay. This right here, remember? Because yes. we watched this. Yes. So this is Frank's house. And he was found right inside the doorway. They then looked around and saw that on this tree in the picture, there were marks. And they're pretty sure that the rifle or gun that was used, whichever was used, I can't remember, that they propped it on the tree and then shot him as he opened uh, the door. Wow. would have to be someone with a pretty good, you know, could shoot pretty good. Right. And he said that there was a lot of blood in front of the doorway. The blood had striations in it like it had been pushed with a broom. He Maybe thought, so it wouldn't come out the door? Yeah, or an attempt to clean it up. But right. you know, that's actually a really good thought, that maybe they didn't want it coming out the door. Yeah. yeah. But really, who's dumb enough to sweep up blood? Ugh, Criminal. The door was closed when Frank was discovered, and his body was behind the doorway with his arms outstretched above his head, laying on his back. Forensics discovered a perfect shoe print in blood. So that's it right there. I mean, perfect. FBI told them that it was a Dr. Scholl's model Escape size 11 sneaker, the same size and brand Rocco wore. The father. So so you think that he shot him himself? And then he walked over there mm-hmm. to make sure he was dead? Yeah, because... But leave a big foot, a shoe print. Right. Again, They're, criminals are dumb. But lucky. But lucky. Yeah. Forensics went into the kitchen. They found yellow cleaning, a yellow cleaning glove, which, I mean, you might expect that in a kitchen. Yes. But it was lying in the middle of the floor. The mate was inside the sink. When they tested the gloves, they discovered Maria's DNA on the inside. But that wasn't enough because, remember, she lived there part-time with the kids every other week. So, uh, But what they found out later is that she actually had not been living in the house for over a year. So it appears that Frank had enough of it. And at this point, he doesn't want her in the house. And well, so she hadn't been her. there for over a year. That gives a little more credence to the fact that she was there at the crime scene because her DNA was found in the glove. In the gloves. It wasn't a smoking gun, but they were about to find something close to it. Frank was shot with two guns, which is weird. Two? Mm-hmm. Four investigators it pointed, obviously, to two shooters. The first bullet struck Frank when he was outside the front door, and it came from a rifle. So that's where they had it between the the tree branches. The bullet passed through his bicep, and it went into his cavity, and that's what killed him, was the first shot. Police expanded their search into the woods, and they noticed the tree with a Y in it and a big base, and they found the spent casing and a live casing, both a 36 round. Oh, and then the idiot left his gun case there, too. 
Oh, my gosh. Again, dumb, but lucky. But lucky. Absolutely. <coughs> okay. After the first shot, Frank was dragged inside and shot at close range with a handgun. That, to me, would say it was a woman. Uh-huh. Detective Williamson spoke of hatred and a message sent to Frank Spencer. That bullet meant something to someone. So we have bullets, shoe prints, rifle case, but two things are strangely missing. Frank's truck and his dog. The truck and the dog. The mm-hmm. dog is someone personal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's real personal. Yep. So what they do is the investigators pull security, camera footage. And oh, they, they had security even. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think it was at his house. I think it was like periodically through places. So they pull camera footage and they find Im- images of Frank's truck driving away from his house just minutes after being murdered. They sent the footage to the U.S. Secret Service to try to determine who was driving the truck, but it was too blurry. Eventually, they found the truck in Sunbury, Pennsylvania, which was 27 miles away from Frank's home, but it was just five miles away from Maria. So, you know, that's that's arrogance because... When you murder somebody and then you have the guts to take their truck, when you know, everyone's going to know the ex-wife has the truck. But what I find interesting is, like, you don't drive the truck and leave it, like, at an airport. No. Or drive it, like, away from. You You drive it closer to, to your, your daughter's house. house. So you don't have so far to walk. Dumb and dumber. Right. <laughs> Dumb and dumber. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. even lucky. Yeah, that. Not even lucky. Okay, and this is what's weird. Now, they've you know obviously tied the truck to Maria now, or almost. Well, 72 miles away, Frank and Barbara Pinto ran a wedding venue in Dauphin. On the day of the murder, a dog appeared as they were setting up for a wedding. Frank said that this beautiful dog just came sashaying in. He's absolutely gorgeous. Let's see, where is he? Let me find him for you. I think you. above. Oh, right, is it above? Right there where you... Isn't that him right under the staircase right there? There he is. Look at him. He's oh, so looks pretty. Looks like a little greyhound almost. Uh, it was Frank's dog, dog Muttley. He was adopted. He was adopted after the kid's other dog was killed in the fire. You would think that Muttley would have been exhausted walking 72 miles, but he wasn't, and Barbara said you could tell he was well taken care of. Detective Williams knew Muttley had been driven there and dropped off. The wedding venue is right along the road from Frank's house to Rocco's house. Oh, dumb and dumber, you're right. Morons. But why would you take the dog out of the house? Because it belonged to the kids. It belonged to the kids. So she'd already killed the one dog, right? And right. the you know. So she probably felt bad maybe for killing the dog and didn't want to kill the other dog. Yeah, I it but and it's they I think another reason that they did such stupid stuff is they had gotten away with everything else. Mm-hmm. What would make any difference? The police didn't look into things, they got away with it, so they probably yeah. thought they'd is I mean, so you left frustrating. A footprint. Yes, with yeah, his I mean, shoe size, and then on top of that, her DNA is in the glove. Now, of course, that all takes time, like the DNA and stuff, to come back. Right, right. But here they have the dog. But six years of it, and yes. not one time arrested. Nothing. Detective Williams thinks that Maria asked Rocco to take Muttley for the kid's sake, and maybe he ran off accidentally. They're not sure. I think Rocco let him out personally. I do too. Even hardened stupid criminals have a soft spot for animals. Yeah. At least some of them. And he also probably didn't want his grandparent or grandkids to suffer. And not to mention the fact that sort of be a flag that you were at the house. Mm -hmm. You have the dog. Mm -hmm. And the dead body. Yeah. Okay. Two months of investigation now paved the way to talk to Detective Williams' two main suspects, Maria and Rocco. Maria refused. Rocco agreed. The detectives think he think he did that though thinks that he did that because he liked the cat and mouse game. It was a challenge. He wanted to talk. Well, she to him. did too. He tried to say that he never left Harrisburg where he lived, but cell phone records show that he was lying. Uh, then he says that he was at Frank's house. Are you ready? Cleaning without Maria the day before. 
claiming. Mm-hmm. So the father-in-law of the now divorced daughter and former Jesus is waiting for you. <laughs> Jesus is waiting for you. <laughs> yep, that's my reminder. I meant to turn that off. But you have he's going to the house of his ex-son-in-law to clean. That's so nice of him to do that. You know, they're so dumb, they just thought, again, they've got away with it all these years. So you're going to clean, but (laughs) he had yellow gloves there, cleaning gloves. Didn't put those on. Mm -hmm. The house didn't look that clean when you had the picture of the dog. broom to sweep up blood. Well, that's what he was cleaning. Yeah, and then the detective, you know, is he's like, well, what kind of cleaning? And he said, well, folding laundry and sweeping. He then said that he had test-driven Frank's truck that day, too, and offered to buy it. He said that Frank said they could wrestle for it. Oh, wrestle? Mm-hmm. He, Viewers, please look at this old man <laughs> and look at... Um, Frank. Frank. Yeah. And and tell me what you think there. Yes. <laughs> Wrestling. All the pictures will be on our website. Well, he did that because it's going to show that he was driving the truck. Yeah, so he's trying to put him, like, why his DNA might a, be there, his right. fingerprints might be there. Right. And uh, now, around the same time, all this is going on, right? Dirk saw Maria in the stands of a high school f- uh, football game, and he asked her why she took Frank away from his kids. And everybody else. And she said the last thing he saw before he died was me. She told oh, she him that. Oh, she admitted it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously Dirk alerts the police. And that statement became evidence. Finally. I figured she'd think, well, she could say it and who's going to believe her? Right. A lawyer and her buddies because right. obviously they haven't been doing anything. And it almost makes you wonder if the fact that she had been a lawyer Almost like a crony thing was going on. I know. That's what I was... Or maybe she was seduced somebody in power. I mm-hmm. mean, women like that, that they used to say. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, though, we have someone that is not going to let them get away with this. Finally. And it's prosecutor Tom Foray. He had been working with Detective Williams on the case because the county DA was now good old Tom, Maria's former divorce attorney. When Foray started looking at this entire case, he was, quote, aghast when he learned that Frank had been reporting death threats for years before and after the fires of 2010, and making death threats in the state of Pennsylvania is a crime. It's a terroristic threat. Maria could have been arrested. She could have been tried. She could have been convicted. Everybody heard her, you know, threatening him. And no one did a thing. You know what's a shame? You know, police make mistakes, and I understand that. But just to ignore yes. people's cry for help, that happened in another case with the the guy, the brother, the, uh, she was in Hawaii, found the two kids dead. Yes, um, Lori Vallow. Yeah, her husband was saying he was scared, what she was talking, and they yep. ignored. You know, in some cases like that, that kind of just neglect on someone asking for help should i mean there should be some kind of repercussion i mean some kind of uh i don't know what's the word i'm using sherry um, well maybe consequences re- consequences for it even yeah. as though you're a policeman i mean come on and the policeman i don't know if you remember but when we watched this show on this the policeman that you know well, i tried my hands were tied was still a policeman on this show talking about it uh, that's crazy. I don't believe in opening it up for policemen to be sued because I think that's a mistake. Yeah, because they'll be sued for right. everything. But I do think that if you have something that was so apparent and nothing was done, they should be fired. Yeah, they should be fired at the very least suspended. Mm-hmm. I mean, something mm-hmm. because a man died. Or in other cases, women die, kids die because yeah. you didn't do your due diligence. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Obviously, the prosecutor, you know, he it was the same thing. And, you know, here you've got terroristic th- threats. He said, quote, if you get away with terroristic threats 
And then if you get away with burglary, and then you get away with fire, and then you get away with a blatant attempt to murder a girlfriend in a fire, the only thing left is murder. Yeah, that's all. You, you keep going up, that's all that's left. Yeah. Sergeant, but they saved the dog. Right. That, uh, now, Sergeant Trowell, he doesn't agree that the town, as well as Mr. For- Foray, um, think that they should have done something and they weren't doing his job. He says that every event was thoroughly investigated. The lead DA, lead DA at the time, before good old Tom, said he wasn't even aware of the threats. But that doesn't make it better. No. It shows a poorly ran police and DA office. And so maybe it's you know, Barney Fife running the investigation of Mayberry. I don't know. Was he fired eventually? Mm -mm. So here's what Tony did. He took all of it, everything, to the grand jury in 2013. Both suspects talked. Tony asked Maria, did you ever threaten to kill Frank Spencer? Absolutely not, she said. Did you ever threaten Julie uh, Julie Dent? Absolutely not. That's all that was needed to charge her because... There were 12 counts of perjury and more than a dozen other charges, including Frank Spencer's murder. So if anything, he was going to get her on perjury because she lied and they had proof. But they needed to. Yeah. She was. And I thought that was a really smart move. It was smart. You know, because. you know how stupid she is. No, I didn't do that when she knows she left recordings. Right. And she has witnesses. I mean, how stupid. Yeah. Oh. Dumb and dumber. Uh, but what I about thought, the father? I thought that was so good. Well, there's a little bit of a twist there. Okay. Uh, but they charged her with 12 counts of perjury and more than a dozen other charges, including Frank Spencer's murder. She was arrested in July 2014. And when she was arrested, she kept saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I think she genuinely believed she could get away with it. Oh, I, mean, I do too. If you think about murders, they always think they can get away with it, right? They think they're smarter than everybody else. And mm-hmm. but, but you know, in her defense, she did. She got away with everything yes. else. Yeah. So why wouldn't you assume you'd get away, you with, get murder. away with murder? Yeah. They issued a, a warrant for Rocco's arrest, but he disappeared. Imagine that. He fled right after finishing his grand jury testimony giving him 11 month head start they eventually found him and extradited him back in the meantime maria went on trial and she was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to to life without parole plus 50 years where did he run to i don't remember i don't remember and then in 2018 rocco was convicted of frank's murder and other charges and sentenced to life plus 45 years maria's sister got custody of the kids and frank's mother got his dog which that makes me nervous you know the family her family having the kids and that's only been three years ago but good old sergeant trow let's finish off with some words he says i mean frank's dead really Thank you for clarifying that. Like, we didn't know that. And I understand that, but I wouldn't do anything. And our department wouldn't do anything differently than we did. I wonder if he, sometimes at night replays that. Either with joy that he's looking at himself saying something he thinks is right, or are you looking at yourself and seeing what a moron you are Ugh. for saying such a and stupid comment? Yes, and it's like so frustrating. And then I'm like, okay, you're not in that situation. You're not in that crime. You know, you don't know all the details, but come on. They had so, I mean, if you've got a prosecutor that's like freaking out that nothing was done, and then you're so prideful that you sit down on a TV and say, we would have done nothing differently. That just shows how how little you cared about this man. They did nothing. Yeah, they did I absolutely nothing. I mean, there was so nothing. much for six years. Tony, the mm-hmm. prosecutor, had different thoughts, obviously. He said that Frank, what Frank experienced was, quote, an epic failure of law enforcement. If Maria had been arrested after the fires, Frank would be alive. To this day, Maria stands by her innocence, saying... I got a life sentence for the misfortune of having a dad who is a sociopath and career criminal who got mad at my ex-husband and killed him. But there were hours of testimony, including the voice messages where she bragged that her father was mafia and was, quote, waiting waiting for the right moment to attack and kill her ex-husband. And Frank's mother testified that she heard Maria threaten to kill Frank at least 50 
times. And still they did nothing. Uh huh. Witnesses. And she even told her, my dad's going to kill him. And what's so arrogant is everything she says is, well, my dad did it, or this did never took any responsibility for anything. Right, yeah. She's, I didn't do that. And this. that's how murderers think. That's why I'm in jail, because my dad. Oh. I um, I wanted to bring up, and I thought I had it. Let me um, get this open real quick. Okay. Some of the statistics on men and, you know, the abuse that they sometimes suffer. Oh, yeah, I do have it up. It's over here. Okay. One in four men have been physically abused. One in four? Yes. And, you know, I've also read before that typically the big percentage of that, officers don't believe them or think, you're a grown man, you're huge, your Mm -hmm. wife's 120 pounds. Right. Can't you handle your wife? Right. I mean... Yeah, and that's by intimate partner, you know, so mm-hmm. wife or whatever. Then one of uh, one in seven men have been severely physically abused. So the first one is like slapped, pushed, shoved. The severe abuse is hit with a fist or hard object, kicked, slammed against something, choked, burned, etc. Oh my god! By some intimate partner in their lifetime. Well, most people do when you think of abuse, women. Yes. Or abused. They don't think of the man. And that's why I wanted to read these statistics, because I think it's important that we recognize that men can be victims as well in these types of situations. And I I also think that men don't report it as much as women because it's embarrassing. They're grown men, six foot two, three, the wife's little, and they're being abused. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I've read that before. Nearly one in 10 men in the United States has experienced rape physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner and reported at least one measured impact relating related to experiencing these or other forms of violent behavior in the relationship, like being fearful, concern for safety, PTSD, symptoms, need for health care, injury, contacting a crisis hotline, need for housing services, wow. need for victim's advocate services, need for legal services, or they've missed one day of uh, work or school at least. One in 18 men are severely injured by their intimate partners in their lifetimes. Male rape victims and male victims of non-contact unwanted sexual experiences report predominantly male perpetrators. Nearly half of stalking victimizations against males are also perpetrated by males. Perpetrators of other forms of violence against males were mostly female. So I guess the rape and all that is usually a male against a male. From 1994 to 2011, the rate of serious violence committed by an intimate partner did decline 64% during the most... Oh, that's a big percent. mm Mm-hmm. And then we have the last uh, bit of data was between 2010 and 2011, and non-fatal serious violence accounted for more than a third of intimate partner violence against males. Oh, wow. Now, here's what's crazy. Teen... uh, Dating violence, 13.4% of male high school students report being physically or sexually abused by a dating partner. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. And then half of men, the final one, half of men have experienced at least one psychologically aggressive behavior from an intimate partner. And four in 10 have uh, experienced at least one form of coercive control, which is the isolation, Mm -hmm. The blackmail, the deprivation of liberty, threats, economic, you know, control and exploitation in their lifetime. Four out of ten. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. You don't really think of the men when you, my man, when you think of abuse. No. no, you really don't. And that's why you know I wanted to do this because here you have this man that loved his family. He was well loved by all his friends. He had a very healthy social life. He had a very a good life and he was attracted to this lady and you know he couldn't get help and I don't know like to me I wonder could he have taken all of the threats and the voicemails they saved and maybe go to an attorney general or go you know like could he have gone to anybody above this police force you know like how 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 much did he try to get help? Was it just with his local police? 
Or could he have gone somewhere else and gotten help? I don't know. I think men and women, though, you don't know where to turn. You don't, because if the police won't help you, you know, every branch, they probably think each branch of over their heads, all connected together, good old boys club kind of thing. And you've got this small town where the DA was her divorce lawyer. Now, that's just outrageous. Yeah. I mean, seriously. So where are you going to go? Yeah, if... (laughs) The DA's her divorce. I mean, and where then, are you going to go? There's no more to go. Well, if I move, I've got a, a family business. It's mm-hmm. been in my family for, you know, at least two generations. My kids, like either way, he was stuck with her. And I think also I would have felt very bad for, you know, falling in love with Julie Dent and then her house is burned. You know, like oh, that's, that's I would feel too. terrible for that. I wonder uh, if he told friends. Oh, yeah. They all, not only and did they he tell them, they, testified. they, they all. all heard. And that's what I mean. If he would have collected affidavits and all of this, and maybe he did. I don't know. I couldn't find any evidence of this. But if he would have collected all of this, could he have gone to the state? You know what I mean? Could he have gone he to the state could've. police and said, I fear for my life. She's told me how I'm going to die. Her dad's now out. She's already burned my house down. She's burned my girlfriend's house down. I can't get anybody to help me. I'm going to be killed if someone doesn't do something and then present all the evidence of the terroristic threats, which were a criminal activity. And DAs are voted in. Yes, they are. So you would think he would try of all, yeah. all people. That's what makes me think, did she have a sexual relationship with him? I couldn't he find any lawyer. evidence of that, but I wouldn't put it past her because she seemed like basically a poop yes. bird. Yeah. A what? <laughs> poop bird. Poop bird. Poop. <laughs> I don't say cuss words. Oh. So, poop. Um, me either. <laughs> I'm just trying wow. to follow in the Lying. line of the family. I do. Not bad, wow. but... You just lied on our podcast. I, did. I, did. I take it back. With a straight face, what? too. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. Any parting thoughts? Yeah, this is a lesson to learn for, for viewers, if you know any man. And sometimes, you know, men are the strong, macho, some of them. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I don't know what kind of flags you'd see unless it was physically... F- I mean, on them, mm-hmm. especially for a man. Ask questions. Yeah, ask questions. If you're but, not seeing them anymore, if they're down, if they're everything, the lights out of them. Yeah, yeah. Ask questions. They're not happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't hurt to ask. Because sooner or later, if you ask someone a question that is like that, if it gets bad, you know that they, they, they think, oh, I do have someone that cares. They yes. asked. Yeah, yep. ask questions. What about our uh, your parting? Oh, and what do you? How do you rate this semi suite? Three. Ugh, ridiculous. Be smart. Be rude. Don't be a victim. Outline of a Murder is a Mr. Joseph production. What do you think, Joseph? (laughs) 